Thank you for listening to The Rest is History. For bonus episodes, early access, ad-free listening, and access to our chat community, sign up at restishistorypod.com. That's restishistorypod.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. This episode is brought to you by Vital Farms. Isn't it bullshit to have to question where your food comes from? At Vital Farms, you can trace your pasture-raised eggs all the way back to the source, the pasture. On the side of each pasture-raised carton of eggs, you'll find the name of the farm where your eggs were laid. And when you look the farm up on their website, you'll get a peek at all the sunshine, fresh air, and open space the hens enjoy. Learn more and find out where to buy them at vitalfarms.com. Vital Farms, keeping it bullshit-free. This is your typical radio ad while eating a Crunch Bar. This is Automatic of Auto's Used Cars. This weekend only, we're having a whale! Bring the kids. See for yourself. It is huge. Gonna make a big splash. No other dealer can say they have a whale like this. When things sound dull, turn up the fun with Crunch. It is but seldom in actual life that the tragic and dramatic notes of action and feeling are struck with the force and frequency with which they were sounded in the Tichborne case. This strange episode, indeed, may be regarded as having been a species of moral tornado, which sweeping suddenly into the social midst swept men from their feet. In its rushing and conflicting currents were excited every sort of human passion, Prejudice, justice, anger, bitterness, heroic disinterestedness, sordid cupidity, ambition, devotion, cowardice, courage. In a word, every man's strength or weakness, the whole gamut of human motive and emotion raging and swirling about one large, melancholy, monstrous, mysterious figure. So, Tom, those were the words of Arabella Keneally, who was a eugenicist, a novelist, and anti-feminist. She was also the daughter of an eccentric Irish barrister called Edward Keneally. And she is talking about the Tichborne case, yeah. the greatest trial of Victorian England, arguably the most exciting and dramatic trial in all British history, which forms the centerpiece, as do those words, of Zadie Smith's brilliant novel the fraud which you've been reading yeah. now you don't normally read fiction tom it's fair to say because you don't like books that are imaginative is that the case i do make exceptions for our greatest living novelists yeah dominic people that you meet at dinner parties is that not the case that's what you said to me no not at all i did happen to meet zadie at a party of course and she did mention that she had yeah. been uh, writing a book on the Tichborne claimant and my ears immediately pricked up because as you say this is an absolutely incredible story i mean it has curses it has disputed inheritances it has mad attempts to pass off various identities and it's a case that obsesses victorian britain for years and years and years so the moment the fraud came out i did indeed rush out and read it i thought you were gonna say i did rush out and suck up to the author but no you read the book she doesn't need my praise 
I mean, she's the most garlanded novelist of modern Britain. But what I will say is that it weaves in the facts of this extraordinary case with all kinds of meditations on fiction, on race, on empire, on all kinds of things. But it brilliantly articulates why this case obsessed people. So I'm just going to read a very short passage. So this is about a servant girl in the household of the novelist, William Harrison Ainsworth. I think he's the guy who basically invents the legend of Dick Turpin. I mean, he was a very, very prolific Victorian novelist who no one reads now. Anyway, so this is a servant girl in his household who ends up marrying him. And she becomes obsessed by the story of the Tichborne Claimant. So no story captured her quite like the saga of the Tichborne Claimant. It had everything, toffs, Catholics, money, sex, mistaken identity, an inheritance, high court judges, snobbery, exotic locations, the struggle of the honest working man as opposed to the undeserving poor, and the power of a mother's love. So dramatic stuff, Dominic. And we thought... I mean, an ideal subject for the rest is history. And who better to talk about it than Zadie Smith herself? Hello. Who joins us? Hiya. Thanks for having me. Welcome to the rest is history, Zadie. Thank you. That's a characteristically long build-up. Normally when you go on a podcast, I imagine people introduce you, bring you on immediately. (laughs) No, it's nice. But we like to keep people waiting. We like to increase the tension. It's good. It's good. Well, it's like a Victorian novel. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. Big intro. Thank you. All right. So... The Titchborn case. So for people who don't know anything about it, which I'm guessing is the vast majority of people, in very, very broad terms to start with, explain what it is and maybe what drew you to it. I've been doing a few readings and my experience is when you start trying to explain the case, then the event is over. By the time I get to the end of the trial, (laughs) there's no time for the event. But I try and do it as quickly as possible. So a Catholic aristocrat, a young man called Sir Roger Titchborn, he was going to Jamaica who's going on his kind of year off adventure. The boat went down with everybody on board. Everybody died. But his mother, who was French and hated the family she'd married into, decided that he was still alive and put adverts all around England and then all around Europe and finally all around Australia, offering larger and larger amounts of money for the return of her son, which seems unwise and like a temptation to fraudsters. And about 20 years later, a man does turn up with a black Jamaican with him, who was a servant of the Titchborn family. And together they arrive in Paris, where Roger's mother was, and say, well, I'm your son. And the problem with it was, was that their son was tall and thin. This man, who was called Arthur Autumn, was about 300 pounds. He's a large man. (laughs) Very large man. The son was uh, educated, grew up speaking French. Arthur Orton did not speak French, was not educated, was a butcher from Wapping, had a thick Cockney accent. Um, And despite all of this, the mother said, that's my son. For reasons maybe of perversity or of genuine longing, anyway, she said it, gave him a thousand pounds a year and then promptly died. And that was the problem, starting an enormous court case because Sir Roger Titchborn was owed this enormous estate in Hampshire, but also like a substantial part of central London. All that bit around Tottenham Court Road, Doughty Street, it was yeah. big. They'd married into the Doughty family, hadn't yeah. they? Which had brought the Titchborns all this extra money yeah. and land. It was a double clan, a lot of land, a lot of money. And so it started a court case that lasted for a year and a bit. 
at which point he was found to be lying. So then there was a criminal case after that. So altogether, it's about two and a half years in court. Yeah. Yeah. So this is in the 1860s and 1870s, yeah. isn't it? So it's reported in gazettes and in kind of scandal sheets. The amazing thing about it is it captures the public imagination as much as it does, because from the way you've described it, it sounds like a kind of bizarre Victorian case that would you know proceed in the courts and ultimately who cares right but actually it's that reading that tom just did earlier suggests it's something that it had all these issues because it had london australia he'd got shipwrecked in south america hadn't he right first hadn't he been going to valparaiso in, in chile chile yeah. yeah and race obviously because as you said, there's the black guy who's with him, who's right. an old servant of the family. Is that right? Andrew Bogle? Yeah, and giving testimony every day in court. I mean, that was quite a sight. I thought after I finished it, it kind of dawned on me that when you have a Jamaican, an Irish lawyer from Cork who's very eccentric and a working class Englishman, you're basically dramatising in the centre of English power the whole problem of the 19th century, which is, oh God, the Jamaicans, oh God, the Irish, and oh God, the working classes. These are three things that people aren't really wanting to think about and suddenly they're being dramatized daily in the queen's court it didn't really occur to me when i was writing it but when you step back you can see the obsession but also that sense of people from different classes and different backgrounds being brought together is right. very reminiscent of dickens who appears as a figure in your your novel are those kind of great portmanteau victorian novels there is a quality of this whole case about that yes no court case in a victorian novel is worth anything without an ancestral curse right and what's even better <laughs> is that the titchbone claimant features an ancestral curse yes. that supposedly goes back to the 12th century. And I wonder, before we get into kind of the absolute details of the case itself, could we go back to the story of the Tichborne Dole and the curse that visits itself upon the Tichborne family? I find this part of the story really disturbing because I like to think of myself as a rational actor interested in rational things. But this story, it is a curse and it does come true. So there is a previous Sir Roger Tichborne hundreds of years earlier, who has a sick wife, Lady Mabella. And as she's dying, she has this concern about the poor in Hampshire. And she says she wants something to be kept for them. So she decides, I don't understand the logic of this really, but she decides to crawl round the land. <laughs> <laughs> to crawl? <laughs> to crawl. Well, she's very ill, isn't she? She's ill. Yeah. She doesn't have an option, Dominic's what I'm saying. She can't walk. So she crawls. No one would carry her. No, apparently not. It's a poor show. It's so weird, but it's a bet. <laughs> On her deathbed, she bets that as far as she can crawl with this lit candle round the land and enclose it symbolically, that amount of land will be given every year. Whatever grows on that land will be given every year to the poor. So she manages 23 acres, which on your deathbed... It's not bad. Even on a good day, I'm not walking 23 yeah. acres. Well, crawling. And certainly not on my hands and knees. Tom, you'd do that. You'd absolutely do that, wouldn't you? Just for spite. I would. Three stinging nettles and everything. Yeah. If it was for the good of the poor, Dominic, I would do it. <laughs> right. To spite your husband. So she does it and the promise is made. And she says, if you don't do that after I'm dead, if you don't give the profit from this land to these poor people, there will be a curse on you. There will be seven brothers born and then seven sisters and then the family will fall into ruin. That was the curse. Quite dramatic. It's always seven, isn't it? Always seven. It's always seven. And they did do the doll for a long time, giving this profit every year, giving the corn. But then it got a little bit wild, like so many poor people were turning up that the family <laughs> disliked the amount of charity they were having to give. So they shut it down. It's amazing. And when they shut it down, um, the curse begins to come into effect. Oh, 
Oh, we love a curse. Yeah, it is, yeah. It is pretty wild. So Sir Henry Tichborne, who's Roger's uncle, did have, I think it's seven daughters. There was one son who died. So Roger Tichborne ends up being the only proper descendant. And then, of course, this drama and the family falls into ruin. So Sir Henry Tichborne, yeah. that's 1803. He's captured by the French and he's held as a prisoner in the Napoleonic Wars. And it's a very complicated series of marriages and stuff like that. Right. And we end up with a guy called James, who's his son, I think. Is that yes. right? <laughs> this is so like a Ooh. Victorian novel. I know. Where's the family tree? Yeah, carry on. Who is married to a French woman descended from the Duke of Bourbon called Henriette. Is yes. that right? Yes. And Roger Tichborne is their son. That's it. And he ends up becoming the heir to the entire estate, Roger Tichborne. Yes. And he, I mean, I'm looking at a photo of him. He looks quite dashing. Posh. Yeah, he looks dashing. He looks yeah. like he'd be played by a young David Niven. He was dashing. Is it fair to say he was not brilliant? He was a bit of a disappointment to them, I think. He was kind of sporty but violent, not particularly academic in school. Oh, he was violent? Yeah, he was always kind of wandering around with a gun or he played the tuba, apparently, really badly. <laughs> That's not violent, I don't think. No. <laughs> well, the servants would complain it was a violent noise, but he was a somewhat unimpressive type, I think. But his mother absolutely adored him and there was no expectation of him becoming the heir because there were all these other children, but they kept on being girls. And then the one boy died. Yeah. So suddenly it was him. Yeah. So 1853, he goes off to South America. Basically, you said on his gap year. Yeah. So he's how old then? He's in his early 20s, is he? Early 20s, having had a kind of unimpressive school career and military career in Ireland. Yeah. But weirdly, before he goes, he leaves some sealed letters behind. Oh, God, yeah. It's like a... And no one knows what's in them. It's like a telenovela, yes. He leaves some sealed letters buried somewhere in the grounds of Titchborn House. Yeah. <laughs> As you do. I always do that when I go away. As you do. Are these ever found? I miss this. So are they still there waiting with a terrible secret or something? No, they were found and destroyed. So that allowed it to be, you know, this kind of black box in the middle of the trial. What was in them? Because was it not later said? Yes. That there was a sex scandal. There is a sex scandal. That was to do with the letters. But actually, then other people said the letters were all about the disposal of fields and stuff like that. I don't think there was any any sex, but it blew up the trial. So in the middle of it, when he's still trying to prove that he is Sir Roger Tichborne, he's asked, if you are Sir Roger Tichborne, you'd know what was in those sealed letters. And he spontaneously makes up this incredible story that he had <laughs> impregnated his cousin. Yeah. <laughs> it was instructions as to how to deal with the pregnancy. Can you imagine? You've got to go big with something like that, haven't you? Yeah. But that's what's so amazing about Arthur Orton is that he's got that Trumpian instinct of Lie big. The bigger the lie, the better. Yeah. yeah. Just yeah. if you're going to lie, go all the way. All right. But let's just stick with Roger. Yeah. Sorry, Roger's in South America. Yes. So he's a kind of tuba playing Bertie Worcester. Yeah, that's fair. But more violent, but we to Zadie. Yeah, a little more violent. A violent tuba playing Bertie Worcester. <laughs> yeah. Okay. He's been messing around in kind of Buenos Aires and stuff. And yeah. then he's going to Jamaica and his ship capsizes. Is that right? Yeah. It's wrecked or whatever. Yeah. And that's the end of him. Or is it? But his mother, because she's French, Tom, she doesn't give up. <laughs> well, she's also Victorian. French and Victorian. It's practically inexcusable. She consults clairvoyance, doesn't she? And the clairvoyants say, listen, he's alive. He's out there. Yeah. And she completely believes it. She believes it. And everybody in the family tries to stop her doing this, but she's completely obsessed. And 
the adverts, when they reach Australia, they're also given to kind of agents who yeah. actively help look for missing people. And that is also a slightly distorted business. So you're paying someone to actively find someone yeah. hundreds of thousands of miles away. The whole system is ripe for manipulation, I'd say. And so while this is going on, while her agents are out looking for her son in the hope that he's not drowned, who is laying claim to the Tichborne estate? It's about to go to a baby son who has been born. There's one more child. Right. Previously to that, his uncle Henry is in the house, I think. He has it for the moment, waiting for a child of his to take it over. But by the time Arthur Orton comes back, there's a tenant in there, uh, Mr. Lushington, who is just renting the place because the Tichborns at that point are not as rich as they once were. So it's Lushington who gets chucked out for this whopping butcher. But are there people, I mean, Tichborns or relatives of Tichborns or whatever, who stand massively to gain if Sir Roger is indeed proven to be drowned or lose out if he is proved to be alive? Yes, his uncle is the one who would gain most. Right. And anybody who comes from his uncle's line. I mean, it is still an enormous amount of land. So, yeah, he has to be dead as far as they're concerned. But I think even more of their worry is that this unknown butcher is going to take over everything they have. <laughs> yeah. That is the motivation. So let's look at the butcher then. Yes. So how is it that he appears on the scene? I think coincidence plays an incredible role. Like when you look at the photo that was published in all the newspapers of him and Sir Roger, of course, there's 300 pounds between them. But I have to say the eyes are similar. Oh, it's AD Dent. The eyes are similar. It was enough. <laughs> they're different, man. I mean, I'm just looking I at I know the they're different men, but can you see? I mean, the photos, even I began to convince myself at a certain point, but... The eyes are a bit similar, and at some point, somehow, in Sydney, he came across Andrew Bogle. So Andrew Bogle had this long, incredible life of being an enslaved man in Jamaica, then plucked off the plantation by Sir Henry to be a page for him for 20 years, then released by the family. He'd married a white English woman, had a couple of kids, she died, then he married another English woman, and they moved to Australia. Um, and he was living in Sydney with these children. His wife had died again. He was alone. And somehow he came across Sir Roger. Sir Roger being the butcher. Yeah, the butcher. Ugh, he says he recognised him. It seems impossible to me. So I've got a question about all that. Yeah. You were saying about the people who do the finding? Yeah. So 11 years have passed. We're now in 1865, right. since 1854 when Roger was lost. And there's a bloke who, in a splendidly Australian you know, thing, He's from Wagga Wagga. He's from Wagga. And this bloke from Wagga Wagga pitches up and says, I think you're Roger Tichborne. That's it. William Gibbs, I think his name is. The Wagga Wagga Man. Yeah. Is the Wagga Wagga Man really the architect of all this? So basically, he's doing it for money. He's found a bloke that looks like Tichborne. He finds the That's servant it. and he says, I'll put the two together. Yeah. It's in everyone's interests that you recognize each other. That's it. It's put together. And the gardener, weirdly, of the Tichbournes is also out there, a man called Guilfoyle, also in Sydney. So... I think it's put together. I like to think that Bogle maybe at some point was sincerely convinced of this. But the moment he says he recognises Sir Roger, the Tichborne family, who up to that point had given him a £50 a year annuity, stop it immediately. So that fact is very interesting that he lost everything he had, his only means of support by supporting this claim. Yeah. So I think the English public took that either as an example of his complete sincerity, like you're willing to lose everything to support this man. Or, of course, the other argument is 
you're in for a penny hoping for a pound, right? So yeah. you give up 50 pounds hoping for a much bigger win further down the line. You say in the novel that whatever side of the thing a person was on, admiration for Bogle appeared universal. Right. So when they go back, he is seen as a figure of the utmost moral quality. Because I think either he's sincere or he's extremely canny. And in both cases, that's a reason for admiration in terms of the working classes watching this case. And which do you think he is? You can't ask a novelist that. I think it's possible for people to convince themselves of anything. Yeah. I think it's a mixture of both. Yeah. There's a story by Borges where he implies that Bogle is just an incredible fiction writer, basically, and he's mm. there for a kind of personal reparations, which makes perfect sense. How better to get your just desserts out of the English government than messing with their court system for two years and then taking the reward? I mean, that does make sense. Your description of him, I thought he sounds like Morgan Freeman. <laughs> Right. You know, in the adaptation of the novel, he'd be played by Morgan Freeman. I went and looked up a photo of him and he does look a bit like Morgan Freeman. He does. He had this kind of innate nobility. Yeah. In the trial transcripts, while everybody else is really behaving so badly, the lawyers are ridiculous, the witnesses are ridiculous, the whole behavior of the courtroom is absurd. He just is this calm center. He seems to speak the truth. He's sometimes witty, he's sometimes painful to listen to, he's confessional, but he seems sane, where everybody else seems somewhat out of their minds. So before we go to the break, let's get the claimant, who we've yeah. we've sometimes called Alton and we've sometimes called him Roger Titchborn, but let's just call him the claimant. Let's get him to England. So they've got together in Sydney. I mean, this is such a complicated story that we're really only scratching the surface. I know. In Sydney, he makes some bad mistakes, doesn't he? He gets his own mother's name wrong, which I think is a... <laughs> Kind of giveaway, I think. <laughs> and the whole lack of French. The, the lack of French. <laughs> yeah, and he doesn't speak French. And Roger, because his mother was French, had been raised speaking French yeah. really as his first language. So one would think those two <laughs> crucial details. You'd think. But he sails for England, doesn't he? And he manages not to sink the ship, despite his enormous weight. Yeah. Doesn't he go to France... I mean, that's an amazing scene. Mm. They go on the boat and some money has been sent to them. So quite painfully, I think, he takes the good seat on the boat and poor Bogle and his family are in, you know, third class with the rest steerage, of the money yeah. in steerage. And then they get to Paris. And even as they get there, Arthur is a bit nervous about it, understandably. It's a big lie. And this is the crunch point. So he, instead of going to the mother, hides in a hotel room with a like a handkerchief over his face and says he's not feeling well, he's not feeling well, loads of excuses. And then the mother finally says, well, I'm coming to you. And then he darkens the room. She walks in. He's like, oh, don't look at my face. I mean, it's so absurd. And he turns to the wall and she's like, no, Roger, darling, let me see your face. And his hand is trembling. And this is the moment. You know, like, you take it off. There she is. You've got to England. It's come this far. You might think, well, I did my best. And that's the moment when she says, no, that's him. Okay. It's unbelievable. He must have been amazed himself that he got that far. Well, it, it's incredible. Unless he was, in fact, Sir Roger Titchborn. Stop it. Well, <laughs> so the case is deepening. Um, I think we should take a break here. And when we come back, we will find out what happens to Sir Roger, a.k.a. Arthur Orton, a.k.a. The Claimant. Life is a highway. And on it, there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. So go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. 
Wearing a men's warehouse outfit makes you confident, like you could do anything, so you dance like no one is watching, even though everyone is watching. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you interview like the job is already yours because it is. Because of the men's warehouse outfit, you golf as if the rules don't apply to you because you're too well-dressed for rules. Because of the men's warehouse outfit. At Men's Warehouse, get measured, get fitted, get hot, get confident in everything from tailored suits to underwear and all the stuff in between. Love the way you look at Men's Warehouse. Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. A giant, the chin-strap beard had receded many inches to make room for the several extra stone gained since last photographed, and every button strained at the sheer girth of the man. So that is Zadie Smith's description of the claimant in her new novel, The Fraud, this colossally large man who claims to be Sir Roger Tichborne, who previously been very sylph-like and has vanished in the ocean. And now the claimant is claiming to be him and has come where we left him. He was in Paris. He had just met his mother or is she his mother mm. and Sadie, what happens next after sir roger's mother recognizes this guy who claims to be her long lost son well she gives him a thousand pounds a year i mean it's just incredible what an achievement and then dies very inconveniently for arthur orton stroke sir roger she dies and suddenly he is without any support nobody else in the titchborn family will claim him and he it's somehow emboldened. I mean, I would run away at that point, but he just doesn't. He decides to fight the case and basically sue the family. That's extremely bold, right? Very. You're suing them to get the tenant out of your <laughs> pretend house. Yeah. <laughs> that, yeah. That's really amazing. I'll tell you yeah. a detail that I think is telling, actually. So I said, is he Sir Roger Titchborn? But I don't think he is. Big spoiler. Because when he first got to London... He had made a special trip to Wapping right. and inquired after the Orton family. Now, the Ortons are the butchers. That's the butchers' family. Now, if he was really Sir Roger Titchborn, there's no way he'd have gone and inquired after a butcher's family. And this was brought up in court, and his explanation was, you know what, I met Arthur Orton in Australia, and he couldn't come, and I just thought I should go and say to his family, <laughs> you know, he's doing well, he's fine. Yeah. He's alive. Well, that's very plausible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, that part of the testimony went on for literal months. Over and over again, that story was repeated. And during the trial, he is secretly paying various of his Orton relatives to say that they don't recognize him. And he's paying them to do that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. He's secretly paying them. And where's he getting his money from? Well, that's the other thing. The subscription fund. The minute right. the money is taken away from him by the Titchborns, the working people of England, mostly, who gathered in support of him, started the fund to support the case. So this is like the housemaid yeah. who marries... Uh, who marries William Ainsworth. They were yeah. really obsessed with him. And, and that part of the case is what interested me most, because though it all sounds crazy, in the context of the time, working people in these courts were getting screwed on a daily basis. That's fair to say, right? Like your working class son steals a sheep, might find himself sent to Australia. 
might find himself hung at Tyburn Tree. So this had been going on mm. for a long time in a court which was almost exclusively populated by upper middle class juries and aristocratic judges and lawyers. I think the, the masses in England saw this as an opportunity to say, let's have one of our own win for once. Though the logic of that, of course, is demented. Yes, because the bind is that if he is one of their own, then he can't be Sir Roger. Right. It doesn't make sense. But if he is, then they're rallying to the cause of a kind of posh aristocrat. Right. The analogy in my mind, the first time I read it, is OJ. Right. It's a similar situation where an obvious lie is being used to reveal a different kind of truth about the court system. But just one other thing that you bring out brilliantly in the novel is the way in which this does have the quality of some melodrama. Yeah. I mean, it seems so implausible and extraordinary as to be fictional. So you have a great description of people coming to watch it as though they're going to the musical. The people had come prepared. They had winkle pots and paper cones of chestnuts to accompany right. the entertainment and laughed and applauded the cross-examinations exactly as if at the music hall. I think the line between court and theatre at that moment in British jurisprudence history is quite thin. Like when you're reading the court transcript, it's funny. Yeah. Above all, it's funny. And what we would consider normal behaviour in a courtroom now doesn't exist. Like a summing up can literally yeah. take two and a half months. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Well, talking of the courtroom, yeah. there's one character in particular. So we alluded to him right at the beginning. Here's this bloke from court called Edward Keneally, is it? Keneally. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he puts on one of the most extraordinary performances actually in the history of the yeah. British courts, doesn't he? So he is acting... In the second case. So there's been a first case which he loses, yeah, which goes on for, you know, 27 years or whatever it goes <laughs> <Right>. on. <laughs> so in the second case, he is now the criminal, someone who has pretended to be somebody else. So it's kind of Oscar Wilde. Yeah, exactly. Oscar Wilde-esque. Yeah. That the guy who brings the case then finds himself on trial. Right. It's the flip. And when the flip happens, Keneally is his defence lawyer... And again, it reveals something about the English law at that time that previously, in another life, Keneally was a poet. He gave up poetry. He retrained as a lawyer. But training as a lawyer at that point is, as far as I can see, a very loose system. Because what he's basically doing in court is just telling very, very long stories. <laughs> That's what uh, we do. <laughs> yeah, just like a podcast or like a novelist, without much rational bounds to them. And unfortunately for Titchborn and everyone involved, Keneally was also... I would say, quite profoundly mentally ill. He's bonkers. Yeah, yeah. I was reading up on him. Tom, you'd love him. He's got a great beard, that kind of W.G. Grace yeah. beard. He wrote a pantomime in verse about Goethe. Yeah, just for starters. And then he wrote a book called The Book of God, in which he said he was the... Oh, yes. I love this. He was yeah. the 12th messenger of God, descended, get this, from two very dissimilar people, Jesus yeah. and Genghis Khan. Yeah. Wow. I think we're all descended from Genghis Khan, to be fair. Yeah. Are we? I think that's what genetics proves, I think. That's one of those Twitter <laughs> facts that I find very implausible, ultimately. No, Adam Rutherford is always telling me this, and I don't understand it, but apparently it is true. Keneally believed that, and he also had kind of like Steve Bannon-like theories of history. Right. Of centuries turning in a certain direction, all to the apex of him. He was basically... The resolution of history. Brilliant. We're just waiting for the arrival of Keneally. And this is the man who was the lawyer on the God. on the case. And is that because, like, as it were, real lawyers? Almost all lawyers said, no, thank yeah, you. Yeah, right. Yeah, he was one of the last people who would accept it. And while running the case, was also kind of building a political movement around the case. He began this thing called the Magna Charter Association, 
which took up a series of kind of political positions, including kind of anti-vaxxing positions, fascinatingly. Because I found that amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. This is uh, what the Titchbourne Gazette they're putting yeah. out, aren't they? And it's kind of focused around making the case that he is Sir Roger. But it has supplementary causes, yeah. Yeah, for who knew the true intentions of these rich men and their needles? Yeah, so their favourite things were, let's make Titchbourne win this case. It was anti-Catholic. There was a big anti-Catholic strain in it. Anti-vax. Somewhat... Chartist, its best parts were kind of an enormous coalition of people wanting more rights for the working man. But inside it were all these kind of extreme fringe elements. And Keneally was running it, you know, outside of the courtroom. So how much does this case, before we get back to the second trial, just on all that, the newspapers, the kind of people raising money. I mean, just listening to you talking about it, it's impossible not to think of all the conspiracy stuff that flourishes today, driven by a new kind of media, right. by social media. How much is this, basically, I mean, I know it's sort of trite comparison, actually, but I'll, yeah. I've started, so I'll continue. Go, on. Go for it, Dominic. <laughs> in for a penny, in for a pound, like the butcher. <laughs> Go in hard. I love a trite comparison. <laughs> How much is this effectively a Victorian equivalent of the kind of ferment of mad theories and paranoias about rich elites and all that stuff that we have now. Right. And driven by new newspapers and stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, so. I mean, I started it before Trump and all of that, but the analogies are impossible to avoid. And I think it's just because they're both studies in populism. And I think I got very used to the critique of right-wing populism, but this is something different. This really is left-wing populism. It's quite irrational. It's class-based, but also fascinatingly to me, it did work. So one of the complaints of the people was that these courts were prejudiced against them, particularly the juries. And in the second trial, under this enormous public pressure and rhetoric which was passing around about the class-based system in the courts, the jury was then deliberately filled with only working people. And I think that might be one of the first times that happened in England. So it's an interesting case of what seems to be a deeply irrational, almost crazy case, working its way through a court and transforming it in some small way. So I don't know, maybe it's an example of how populism, as frightening as it sometimes can be, does also function in some way and is a weird machine for manipulating people's emotions to some political end. And to what extent do you think this kind of vast populist enthusiasm for the claimant is making fantastical figures out of both the claimant and Andrew Bogle, who is his, I mean, the chief substantiating witness. Because you give a kind of brilliant backstory of Andrew Bogle, of his father who is taken from Africa and experience of the plantations before the abolition of slavery. Right. How much of that is based on fact? I mean, that's all fact. I mean, everything that happens in the plantation scenes happens on those plantations. And one of the amazing things about writing this book is that UCL have digitized every plantation in Jamaica. So you can get very granular, like every name, every job, every child. So we know exactly which plantation he was born on. and Yeah, yeah, exactly. He was on Hope and we have all the details. So that I had all the facts, which was an incredible thing. But I, I think what interested me and interested Borges is like these Victorian lives that pass through so many situations, like how extraordinary to be born in that situation and then come to London, then find yourself in the high court. Yeah. It was so hard to imagine what kind of a life was that where you were in so many different worlds simultaneously. But he did become a legend and those meetings that Tichborn or Arthur held all around the country 
they were held in the same places where, you know, for example, Dickens spoke, where political rallies were held. They look like Trump rallies, that you turn up in town, hundreds and hundreds of people come, there are banners, there are people screaming and shouting, and there's a lot of paraphernalia. Like if you go to junk stores now, you can still find little models of Bogle and Tichborne, plates, cups. Wow. Yeah, it's extraordinary to me that it, it was that popular and then so completely forgotten. That's the other thing. And also they are fabricating witnesses, aren't they? So they come up with a Dane called Jean-Louis, who yes. claims to have been a steward on the ship that had rescued Sir Roger from drowning and then taken him to Melbourne. He's a paid actor. Yeah, a false flag, <laughs> as yes. they would say these days. A recently released convict. Yeah, you're watching a court system in which it's perfectly normal to say, we're going to have 210 witnesses. Yeah. So <laughs> it wasn't a practical system. And I think part of the effect of this trial was that the English legal system looked at itself and said, this can't continue. You can't call 250 witnesses. And this post-states Jarndyce and Jarndyce? Has Dickens already written Bleak House at this point? One of the questions was, did Dickens go to this trial? But then, of course, I realised he's dead just before it. He missed yeah. the trial that he would have adored. Yeah. So Bleak House is 20 years before this, actually. Yeah. No, it's a perfectly Dickensian trial, but he is dead before it. But Elliot is there. George Elliot went to see it. I don't know what she made of it, but I love the idea of her sitting there watching this. It's much more Dickens than George Elliot, isn't it? The whole shenanigans. Yeah, it's not to her taste at all. She doesn't like this amount of irrationality and poor behaviour. Very poor behaviour. Yeah, we've had a lot of poor <laughs> behaviour on behavior. the rest of this history, but yeah. we've never had poor behaviour like this. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually the longest trial in English history, I think, isn't it? I think McLeibel takes right. it, actually, in the 90s. Okay, but until... Until then, yeah, it's the longest. But it actually ends so quickly. So there's a big issue of tattoos, isn't there? Yes. <laughs> of course there is. <laughs> there's now at the moment that basically this yeah. case falls apart because there's a bloke who was at boarding school with him. We right. always love a boarding school story, Tom. Stonyhurst, is it? A yeah. Stonyhurst, a Jesuit boarding school. Yeah. I mean, who would go to a Jesuit boarding school? Bonkers. Anyway, that's by the by. He's gone to this school and a bloke pitches up who says, I was at school with him and he had some very distinctive tattoos. Right. Seems odd that a teenager would have loads of tattoos, but well, who knows? And they did it to each other, maybe just inked each other. Inked each other? Yeah, inked each other. That sounds odd, but you know what I mean? Like yeah. probably your friends did it. But that's what did for him, yeah. I think it's a bit like Trump and Stormy Daniels. It, it's not the thing you yeah. think is going to take you down. It's always some... Al Capone and the tax return. Yeah, it's always some small thing. And in the end, not having a tattoo on his arm... Was the killer. Was the end of it, yeah. Because the jury say to the judge, we've heard enough. We don't need the other 3,000 witnesses. Yeah, that's it. <laughs> yeah, two and a half years. We're good. It was a tattoo. And that was it. And suddenly he was imprisoned for 14 years, I think. And by the time he was released, he was like a broken man. He then did confess to being Arthur Orton to a newspaper to get some money. And with that money, set up a cigarette shop in Islington. But years later, right? Years later. And paid by a newspaper. But then he retracts it, doesn't he? And then he retracted it again. Yeah. Still playing the game. And then died broke, destitute. And then, to bring the story full circle, was buried right next to my house, which is how I came to know about all of this in the first place, in Paddington Cemetery off Wilsdon Lane. Is that so? Yeah. But buried as who? Well, this is the thing. So when it was announced he was going to be buried, and the case had been, you know, it was a long time since this had happened, and you'd think most people have forgotten about it, but suddenly everybody was interested again. And there's a photograph you can see online of 5,000 people in Wilsdon Lane. Wow. 5,000. 
came to see him buried. And the Titchborn family, for some reason, though they had fought him all those years, said, fair play. You can have a little cardboard thing on top of the coffin saying Sir Roger Titchborn. That's nice of them. That's so bizarre, it's isn't it? It's so bizarre. And he was buried in a pauper's grave. Yeah. There was no money to bury him. And there's no stone. So it wasn't that official. But apparently they let this little cardboard sign. Why did they do that? That's mad. I don't know. It's sentimental or Dominic or... <laughs> guilt. Were they admitting? Yeah, guilt. <laughs> yeah. So there he lies. And I walk past him every day with the dog in this pauper's grave. Yeah. And what happens to Andrew Bogle? Borges said he was run over in King's Cross, but that's a romance. It's not true. He just died poor in, in King's Cross, also a pauper's grave. His mixed race son had had, by that point, 11 children. So I always assume there are a lot of Bogles in England. They're probably white, or they might be any other colour. I guess they might have married whoever, but they might not know that they are related to this extraordinary man. And what about Titchborns? The Titchborns continue, I think. There's a few Titchborn pubs in Hampshire, which I still haven't visited, which I'm excited by. The house, I know, doesn't belong to them anymore because I saw it in the Sunday Times for sale one day. Not for very much money, even. Oh, go for it. No, I don't think it has much land left. I think it's just the house now. There must be Titchborns around, but I don't think their wealth continued. And I don't know if they still get the rents from Doughty Street. The baronetcy is expired. I'm looking at it here. 1968. Yes, that's it. There you go. Sir Anthony Doughty Titchborn. And so one last legacy of this case yeah. is our word titchy. Yeah, that part is crazy. And for the relief of my readers, I did not add another... 58 pages on this topic. I, I restrained myself, which I thought was good. But there was a music hall figure who apparently looked a bit like Arthur Orton in the face and was quite round, but with the key difference of being four foot six, which is really quite small. And he was called Little Titch and was a massive music hall star, performed in blackface a lot of the time, which is fascinating. But his most famous routine was with these two massive ski feet. He was called Big Boots. And he would do a big boot dance in which, you know that bit in Smooth Criminal where Michael Jackson goes all the way to the floor almost and back again? Little Titch did that first. Mm. On the skis, he would go all the way to the floor and back. There's a video of it you can see online. And he was an incredible hit. So we still say things are titchy because of Little Titch. Yeah, I had a friend at school when I was eight. I mean, he was just called Titch. Everyone called him Titch. Yeah. And it had never occurred to me. Yeah, or where that word came from. That he was called Little Titch after the Titchborn claimant. Yeah. Kind of perfect that this very musical trial ends up in the musical. Yeah, still with all the same themes around it, the idea of, you know, this black-faced character who's channeling some unseen place that nobody visits and nobody knows about. All the themes just keep on circling. Centre of England, the things on the border, mm. and these strange, irrational actors. Yeah, it's fascinating. Just a question before we go, Zadie, about your book, The Fraud. Yes. So obviously, you know, we've done however many episodes about history, and mm. we sometimes talk about historical fiction, so we talk about Patrick O'Brien or whoever it might be. But for you as a, as a novelist writing about a period of history, do you feel a kind of obligation to the – you know, this is such a detailed story. Yeah. There are, as it were, so many facts. Do you feel an obligation, a responsibility to keep to the facts, or do you feel as a novelist you have free reign, as it were? I remember hearing Hillary talk about this, Mantel, and I think she's right. Mm. If you want to work with history, you want to work with history. The facts are important. They're very important to me, so I wouldn't see the point of manipulating them beyond reason. And in this case, you barely had to fictionalise. It is a fiction in itself. 
And I, I didn't change anything, really. The only change is a fictional character outside of the case called Mrs. Touche, who is kind of extended beyond her normal lifespan or realm. But no, to me, the facts are really important. It's like a, a rearrangement of the facts into fiction, but not an obscuring or, or a changing of them. It's the truth that fascinates me. But it's also a novel about Victorian novels to a degree, isn't it? Yeah. And I think I was just kind of interested in everything that Victorian novels hide or obscure. Like it's so common in a Victorian novel for the most useless son of the family to disappear to Jamaica or to Australia. And it's always out of sight. You never quite know where these useless sons are going to. So it was an opportunity for me to kind of know myself, to fill in those gaps and write it in full. But the energy of those Victorian novels and the incredible kind of imaginative engine of them is something I've envied all my life. They're such incredible generators of story. Well, you have done them proud. Wonderful. So Sadie Smith, thanks so much. Thanks so much. I loved it. The novel, The Fraud, is absolutely unmissable. We hope you have enjoyed this extraordinary story. Um, And uh, who knows, the claimant, real or not, you decide. Thanks very much for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Bye-bye. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, U.S. Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics U.S., brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.